0: Hello and welcome to the Vocal Advancement Podcast, a podcast for singing teachers by singing teachers. And I'm one of your hosts, Tom, and this is the lovely Heather. Previt. (laughs) Hello.
1: I'm Ukrainian today.
0: (laughs) I'm not attempting that one, so... (laughs)
1: If you're listening out there and uh, I have not said hello in your language yet, please let us know and I shall attempt to learn how to say hello in as many different languages as I can for the intros to these podcasts.
0: (laughs) And then on the 100th episode, there will be a pop quiz for Heather.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Which I will fail. I've been been learning some Ukrainian, actually, because uh, in one of the choirs that I teach, I have uh, two Ukrainian ladies who are staying with one of my choir uh, choir members. I've I've joined my choir. I've come to join the choir and sing in the choir. But we sing, um, it's it's Christmas time at the minute while we're recording. Uh, And uh, so we are doing Carol of the Bells, standard uh, quiet song, but it's a, it's a Ukrainian song, Carol of the Bells, if you was didn't it? already know that. Know that. It, was, it was written by a Ukrainian composer, um, and so they, they challenged me to try and sing it in Ukrainian. Wow. <laughs> so I've been doing my best to try and learn to, you know, sing it like that. Yeah.
0: Impressive. I know,
1: and it just? I can only do about yeah. three lines, but... <laughs>
0: <laughs> i'm trying. <Christmas> 2027
1: 20, <laughs> it's 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 such a unusual language you know obviously all of those russian languages very it's not like trying to learn another european language um
0: yeah that's very strange but the, the how they use their tongue differently from other languages in it so yeah that's yeah, quite impressive challenge but there we go get me yeah <laughs> We expect the video to see the recording when it's Yeah, done.
1: When, when I actually get, i trying to get the rest of the choir to do it too. They're, they're not quite as keen.
0: <laughs> I can understand that.
1: <laughs> like, why don't you just sing the first bit on your own, Heather?
0: <laughs> yeah, they're probably like, Let, I just want to get the harmony. You figure out the language. I'll
1: just sing Ding <laughs> Dong. That's it. <laughs>
0: oh,
1: but there we go. So, who, who's on today's episode, Tom?
0: Well, today we are talking to the lovely Dr. Elizabeth Ann Benson, and Elizabeth did a webinar for us, and she was talking about the trends in CCM teaching that is the subject of her very impressive book that is out, and that took a while to get that out for some reason. (laughs) Yeah, She, she did a fantastic
1: webinar just going through... All of the, basically what she did was she, she uh, it was a huge research project where she went to lots of like key contemporary pedagogues and, um, you know, figures within the vocal world and interviewed them essentially on their take on what their technique and their approach to teaching singing was. Um, and then she kind of organised it by themes and went, okay, this is what all the people said about breathing, And this is what all the people said about belting, for example, and organized it into this book. So it is like a who does what guide to teaching singing, right? So it's not so much a book that teaches you how to teach singing. It's a book that shows you what everybody else is doing and what everybody's take is, which is fascinating. And if you like a bit of gossip, it's great for that. (laughs) (laughs) I got it just to see who said what. I know. I'm like, oh, I wonder what they said about that. That's it. Let me find out.
0: But yeah, no, it's a great book. And it, it's... Um, like, I, when I started reading it, I was like, oh, is this just going to be a collection of scientific papers and stuff like that? But when you got into it, it's like, this is really interesting. And it's really, really very interesting to see the common similarities across approaches, but they describe it differently or they use different language or they have a different approach as to how they do teach it and use it with students. So, yeah, it's a really... Very interesting book that I would definitely recommend people read if they're interested in that kind of thing.
1: I mean, for me, the in, the 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 reason it's really useful as a voice teacher to see what all these approaches are and how they talk about you, what language they use, like you say, is that if someone comes into my studio for a lesson and they have had lessons previously with a teacher from a particular organisation or who has a particular approach or is trained with a particular person, I am now equipped to know when they say such and such, I know what they're talking about and how that then translates to maybe language that we might use that might be different. So Ooh, yeah, I found point. it very useful for that so that I can know exactly where they're coming from, what might be very similar in the way that I would approach it and what might be a little bit different so that I can, you know, kind of gauge that. Um Really useful for that.
0: Yeah, that's a very good point. It's almost like a dictionary of, of you know, this, tef- this technique does this and this is what it means. So, yeah, it's, it. it's a great tool for voice teachers. So I think we should talk to Elizabeth now. I think we should. She has so it.
1: much interesting things to talk about. Let's she go does. talk to it.
0: And she gets brownie points because she has such an amazing sparkly background <laughs> that you'll get to see if you watch the video. <laughs> I want a sparkly background like that now. It's like a disco background. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Um, Elizabeth, it's lovely to have you here. Um, you did a fantastic class for us, and it was really, really interesting. And I just wondered, first of all, what what inspired you, shall I say inspired, or what possessed you <laughs> to write that book that you wrote all about all those different um, you know techniques and approaches to teaching singing?
2: I thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm really happy to be here. Thank you. Um, Good question. I think, you know, really when I, you know, it it sort of goes back to my own journey that when I was sort of coming out of my formal education and everything I had learned was great for classical singing, but that's not what the private sector marketplace was really demanding. And um, I just knew like I didn't have all of the skills that I needed to remain employed. I wanted, you know, I wanted To have a lot of students, and I wanted to, um, you know, be able to earn a living. And, um, and so this is really the book that I wish that I had had access to at that point. I had to go on my own adventure and, you know, piece together a brand new education for myself, essentially. And so. I, you know, did a lot of individual training with um, a lot of the folks who ended up being in the book um, and sort of went through, you know, their formal study programs and, you know, um, some private study as well. And, you know, it took several years for me to gain the knowledge that I felt I'd really mastered uh, for myself and for my students. And so, you know, I really wanted there to be a shortcut. I wanted there to be a way to access that information without going to each individual methodology and going through their training. And um, the book, of course, isn't a comprehensive representation of all of these codified methodologies, but it does give you a little taste of what some of the core values and core systems are with those methods. And so I felt like it could also function as a little bit of a um, like a preview for folks if they're interested in maybe studying further and they want to invest the money and the time to go and do that. But they could get a little idea, a sense of what those programs are going to entail before they arrive and make make the investment so um you know it's really about i think access to information and just wanting there to be um a central location where folks could go to begin to explore because so many hmm. people coming out of university programs especially here in the united states are o- only have access to classical um to classical styles and genres and comprehensive <laughs> education for do you, classical
1: do you think community. that's do you think that's changing at all
2: I know it's changing in other countries for sure um, and i you know I think it is getting um i think we are understanding in higher education models that we need to get a little bit broader and more inclusive um and so yes, there are more master's programs coming up, and there are um, you know m f a degree programs now for um for voice pedagogy in music theater and other specializations. But I Mm -hmm. think, you know, there's not going to be, I think a large number of doctoral programs anytime soon that can, you know, that has the faculty and the infrastructure and the, you know, the recording studios and the equipment that one would need to really become um, an expert in CCM voice pedagogy and um, CCM being, a very problematic, incredibly large term that covers yes. basically everything in the world except Western European classical scene. I mean, it's definitely a step up from
1: not classical.
2: It is. <laughs> It is, but it's, it's such a large term that we're not sure what it means a lot of the time. It's Mm -hmm. still very unclear. And I think in terms of a program of study, especially at the doctoral level, um, you know, I was told many times with my dissertation topic, you need to make it more narrow, more specific, more, you know, and, and doctoral programs Mm -hmm. that are very broad in scope, I think tend not to be as effective. So, um, so I think we have a real challenge in terms of matching the needs of the marketplace and, you know, the fact that many teachers are needed um, in these areas, but we don't necessarily have the educational systems in place yet to provide those teachers um, in the numbers that we need um, just to match the the needs of the marketplace.
1: So, So your then departure into, you know, exploration of CCM, was that purely kind of market driven? in that that's what people wanted to learn to sing
2: yes exactly so when i finished my um i i was all but deserted so i'd finished all my coursework i had a baby and um decided i didn't want to live in new york anymore with a young infant and Mm -hmm. so moved to colorado um in the western united states and there the marketplace was in in I was uh, I had a job at a community music school teaching private voice lessons um just outside Boulder Colorado and there was you know great high school music programs and um you know large budget high schools to put on beautiful productions laymiz and and shows that are wow. you know really take a lot of effort and talent um to produce and there was very much demand in that community for musical theater training for um pre-college students in particular. So so I taught for five years, you know, the sort of 13 to 18-year-old sector and all the demand there was for musical theater. And I I recognized pretty early on that um, my students were all going to belt whether or not I... That it was okay or said they should or thought (laughs) they should, regardless of my influence, they were going to be doing it in the car and in the shower and, you know, whenever they, in karaoke and with their friends and at auditions. And so, um, so I pretty quickly had to reevaluate what I had been taught in my classical training, which was that Mm -hmm. belting was dangerous inherently and should be avoided, you know? And Mm -hmm. I thought, I just don't think that could possibly be true when you, have folks with really long careers doing it 8 days a week and and still having a voice after 20 30 years in the industry i thought you know patty lapone can't be doing it wrong you know <laughs> so so i so i sort of went back and said okay there's got to be a way to do this safely you know in a way that i understand how it functions and that i'm able to navigate it myself in my own voice and also to lead my students through that process so So it was really, Mm. it was very market driven, but I was also curious, you know, I just Mm. wondered what, you know, why have I been told, oh, just stay away from this entire topic or stay away from this entire (sighs) register? Mm. When, when I thought like, you know, I, I've got two registers. Why am I being told not to use one of them entirely when that's where I talk and it just seems to make no sense. Um, so, so it was really just about, um, critical thinking and wanting to kind of reevaluate maybe the motivations behind why I might've been taught to avoid certain things or why I might've been told with no evidence that certain behaviors are dangerous. Um, So I wanted to dispel all those myths and really get to the bottom of it and understand it myself. I love that. There's
1: so much more research going on within the CCM field these days. Do you, do you think there's still, you know, teachers teaching, you know, academically, like that, that are still of the opinion that belting is bad for you and you should avoid it? Or do you think the research is starting to uh, change that somewhat?
2: Well, I do think that the the research is providing evidence to um, to disprove that belief. So, mm-hmm. um, so I know that the research is out there, and voice science is informing our pedagogy more than ever. Um, but I don't know that everybody is reading all the research. Um, so, so I, I'm sure there are you know there are teachers out there who are still doing things the way that. We did them 20 years ago or 30 years ago or maybe even more. Um, but I do think that the younger generations of pedagogues and and my research certainly showed this too, are really interested in keeping up that they, that they're wanting to know what's out there and what's new and what's changed, you know, um, one of the studies that came out recently, right, that showed that caffeine is not a diuretic and that we can mm-hmm. all drink our coffee and still be good singers. <laughs> you know, for example, that was such an exciting piece of research to come out. And it's yep, changed I was quite happy people's about that one. lives. Yes. <laughs> it's a
1: huge deal, right? She says with a coffee in her hand. <laughs>
2: exactly. So so I think that, you know, it's not just about, um, you know, foundational beliefs, but you know, even small things like that, and, and sort of advice that we would give our students on vocal health and hygiene, you know, my, I had to go change one of my handouts that I gave out a lot of the time to correct it to say, Yeah, you can drink your coffee, you know, like, not a problem, <laughs> you know, and people still come in with the belief of like, Oh, never drink milk, never drink coffee, never, you know, yeah. with sort of these, you know, beliefs, and I'm like, actually, guess what, you can drink your coffee, you know, because we have evidence showing that it's safe. So um, it's, um, it's, it's one of those things where, you know, voice teaching, it's, it's a very diverse group of folks that are out there doing it with a very, um, very diverse spectrum of backgrounds and training. And, you know, the truth is you don't need any training at all to, you know, hang out your shingle out there doing it with a very, um, very people who are maybe um, instrumentalists by training who also teach voice. And you get people who are, you know, absolute diehard voice experts with multiple degrees. And, you know, those folks are doing essentially the same job. So, mm. so I think that, you know, like any field, you're going to have people who come from different backgrounds with different beliefs and different levels of curiosity about what is changing. Um, I also think there's so much research coming out that it's impossible for everybody to stay on top of absolutely everything. It's, it's yeah. a little it's like overwhelming. A yeah. Mm. Yeah. Exactly. Which is why it's so nice that we're seeing this trend come up where people can refer out more and not feel like Mm -hmm. we have to maintain this master apprentice model where I know everything as the teacher. um, It's, I think it's a relief as a teacher that I can say, you know, I know a little tiny bit about hip hop. I can get you started, but then I'm going to send you to like 12 people that will do it a hundred times better than I do um, because I'm not, insecure about that and you know I know that that's going to benefit you the student um, and that you're going to get what you need uh, by me saying hey I don't know enough about this to really be a good partner for you in exploring this and and that way um, the student can still get what they need and I don't feel the pressure of having to become an expert in everything
0: yeah that's such an interesting and such a valid point and we actually had this conversation in our previous podcast with Lynn Hilton we were talking about this belief that teachers have to know about the master apprentice, as you say. So, yeah, it's 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 good to hear you talking about that. Um, and I'm curious as well because, you know, I have have your book. And then after your webinar, I went and bought the book because I was like, this is really interesting, I want to know. And like, what, I haven't finished it yet. But what struck me so far is just the sheer logistics that must have been involved to bring all these different people together into this book. I mean, it must have been like herding cats, as they say. <laughs>
2: was a lot of email. It was a lot of just constant emailing. Um yeah, it was. And I, you know, part of that was just my own, you know, naivete and never having taken on a project of that scale before. And I wanted to, you know, I wanted to capture a broad swath, you know, I wanted to make sure I had Folks from the, you know, younger generations who were represented. I wanted the pioneers in the book. I wanted major methodologies, meth- methodologies represented well. And I wanted there to be an international presence as well so that it wouldn't just be, you know, an American perspective. Um, and that's why we ended up with so many folks in the book. Um, and, you know, going if I, you know, if I had my druthers, you know, to do a second edition, I would be much more mindful, I think, of some demographic spectrums and making sure I have really good representation and cultural representation from um, a, maybe a wider spectrum of genres. But um, but I think that, you know, yes, it, it was a lot of logistics in terms of the the emailing back and forth and, you know. Uh, the proofreading and the transcripting and, you know, sort of all, all of that. And, um, and in some cases, you know, getting folks to edit things down, you know, so, so that we could, um, you know, end up with good representation, because I didn't want there to be, you know, a, you know, 400 word response from one person and like a 2000 word response from another yeah. person, um, just so that we could sort of, you know, maintain <laughs> some, some parity in, in terms of, um, you know, who's getting, who's getting space in the book
1: so you sent it out as like a questionnaire then did you to each of these people and asked them to write their answers back rather than meeting with them
2: Mo- for most folks yeah written right. correspondence was was actually the most efficient way of doing things um and mm-hmm. at least time consuming but there were a few who preferred to do a a, a zoom interview which is mm. which is how how i did it for i think three or four but it wasn't it you know there was 25 different perspectives represented so the, the vast majority um preferred written um And yeah. And so there was, you know, follow up and, you know, deadlines and things like that. And then folks who needed more time or things came up and, um and then there was, of course, the organizing of it all. So once I got all the responses back, then reorganizing it all by topic and then doing the sort of subject analysis for each of the topics that, you know, that was also pretty, pretty time consuming. So, so I thought the book would take maybe a year, you know, it, it, it took four years. So from from the very beginning, you know, when I first designed my, you know, IRB study application so that I could just begin contacting people to even see if people wanted to participate in such a book, um, all the way to when it was finally published, you know, was, was a full four-year project.
1: And so is this the final book you were ever writing in your life? (laughs) Do you think you'll be mad enough to try and do something
2: again in the future? Well, I definitely needed a little break from book scale topics. And so I, I I turned my attention more towards articles and sort of shorter term projects that I could complete in a more sort of satisfactory timeline. But also um, my interest shifted and I didn't have any uh, interests that I thought were really on the scale of a book for a little while. Mm-hmm. And um, I just tried to keep an open mind. And I thought, you know, when when a book scale topic presents itself to me, I'll be open to to coming back to it Um and uh, and that may be happening now. So I'm sort of, you know, I'm a few Ooh. years out from from the book coming out. And and so I may be entertaining mm-hmm. that idea again here. So but, awesome. uh, your,
1: your research has, has followed more of a kind of a inclusion diversity sort of perspective now, hasn't yes. it?
2: Yeah, well, it's definitely very much entrenched in social justice and the intersection of voice pedagogy and social justice and what that looks like in different facets. Um, and so, you know, that that really did come out of the CCM research in that, you know, we need we need um, genre equity. And we we struggle with that and getting the same resources allocated toward non-classical styles as we do for, especially in higher educational models, there's just a lot of infrastructure in place to support classical music and less so Mm -hmm. for CCM. Though that is changing and I do think it's improving and we're recognizing that it's, you know, in order for music programs of all genres to survive, we need to be more inclusive and we need to um, represent the different cultures that have contributed to um, the musical landscape. Landscape in the United States, which is very, very broad, um, and so I do think that there's there's changes happening there. Um, but uh, then, you know, it became a little bit more specific because we had uh, the Black Lives Matter movement happen in the United States, and that really um, caused me to want to look at how racism was manifesting in music programs, which is something that, um, you know, we don't necessarily draw a really straight line to those things. But if you, you know, for example, if you encounter someone who has a bias against um, hip hop music, um, what is that? What is that about? You know, like I wanted to start asking the questions like, why, you know, why do people say rap isn't music? You know, and and what is that really about? And then looking at sort of the history of um, popular music and the rise of the popular music um genres here in the United States coming out of jazz and uh, blues and then into uh, rock and roll coming out in the 1950s and then sort of what did that look like so we have a lot of music that's uh, styles that are based out of people of color coming out of jazz and coming out of blues and turning into other styles like R&B that have you know been here forever and so if we are excluding those styles, um, it's also sending a message of sort of cultural ex- exclusivity, which I think is not reflective of our modern society. And so to say that music is, you know, it's OK for music to continue to be segregated or for, for us to continue to sort of perpetuate a Eurocentric model where we put a hierarchy in place and we say classical music is the best. Um, for me, that's problematic. I, you know, as an, as an mm. American, we're not even talking about American music being the best. We're saying European music is the best um, and should get the most resources.
1: <laughs> that's a very good point. And I thought
2: like, <laughs> that just seems weird to deny our own culture. Absolutely. Place. You know, mm. so so really, so it's it's really all tied into that. So it came out of that idea of wanting to see more uh, broad genre and cultural representation, and for there to be a seat at the table uh, for folks who don't come through classical music first as like a filter, and then we'll let you do other things. And I thought that just doesn't make a lot of sense. So, no, so you know, looking at ways to
1: um, even boiling our- down to um, notation of music.
2: Yep. Very Eurocentric, right? Very Eurocentric. (laughs) Absolutely. And it's also, you know, to sort of if for there to be an implicit requirement that people read Western European notation before they get to college, for example, this excludes folks who are especially singers who might be incredible performers who've come up through an aural-based oral training like gospel mm-hmm. choir or, you know, we think of a lot of sort of church singing. None of that is notated. It's all done by ear. And so these folks are going to be excellent at improvisation or riffing or harmonization on the spot or, you know, some of these skills that we don't learn in classical training, and um, and it doesn't mean that they are not qualified. You know, to to be really successful in a, a college music program, it just means that they're they have to learn a notational system that doesn't actually work for a lot of genres. It was not built for gospel singing, no. so. Um, <laughs> So again, you know, like that's that's like an obstacle, you know, if we're saying, oh, you have to read this Western European notational system. Who are we excluding by by having there be that requirement? And um, so one of the things I did in my in my program was I made a new class that is an intro to reading music. Um, And it's meant for just to meet this exact um, sector of people who come in with a lot of talent and a lot of skill and a lot of knowledge. Um, but they don't read Western European notation. And so, Mm -hmm. um, but I think even just labeling it that, not saying this is how we write music. That's not true. That's how we write some styles of music. And this is one of the systems Mm -hmm. um, and perhaps the one that's most widely used now, but it doesn't, it didn't necessarily, it's not built for every style. And we don't even have um, symbols and tools to represent all of the sounds that we might, uh, we might make in, in different genres. And so... So it, it, you're absolutely right that there's, mm-hmm. we wanna re-examine these things, like what it, you know, cause we want a diverse student body. We want a diverse faculty body. We wanna represent a lot of different cultures and we don't want to accidentally miss out on the enrichment that that will bring to any musical atmosphere or, um, you know, learning environment, that that curiosity. So um, so that's why, um, so that's why my my research program really turned to more issues of social justice and looking at what that looks like in the, in the classroom particularly in the singing voice studio Um, Mm -hmm. because you know we don't we don't always you know when you're in a one-to-one teaching environment you have tremendous influence over your students and and that's something that I don't take lightly at all and it's really important to me that my students feel seen and heard and empowered And, you know, that I don't accidentally hurt somebody by saying, oh, I hate that particular style of music. But that's the style of music that that student like grew up living and breathing and loves, you know? Mm. And so then what does that, what does that say to that student that I'm, that I'm just dismissing outright an entire genre, you know? So, so things like that, you know, just making Mm. sure my, you know, my personal preferences, what I listen to in my car doesn't have a place in the voice studio. If a student wants to, you know, work on a particular style of music, even if I don't like that style, Uh, I should learn a little bit about it and help that student and not discourage them. That's the most
1: important thing. But it's still okay for me to tell my husband that his music sucks,
0: right?
2: Well, he's not your, he's your student.
1: Because he's not my student, no. So that's okay, right?
2: (laughs) We can, of course, still have our preferences. There's nothing to say. Like, you're not allowed to like certain things more than other things. Um, But that doesn't mean that... Don't diminish other people's... Yeah. Mm -hmm. And and my taste shouldn't supersede what my student wants to do, you know? So the student's uh, preferences are equally valid.
1: Absolutely. Fascinating stuff.
2: So what is your next research project going
1: to be focused (laughs) on, Elizabeth?
2: Give um, us a sneak peek. In the middle of um, a really exciting uh, project with uh, co-author Kate Rosen, a co-investigator, we are doing a study right now on the experiences of large-bodied singers in uh, singing training programs and particularly looking at what their experiences have been in the voice studio, so in those one-to-one training situations. And, um, how size has been treated, um, because the industry is not a friendly place for people of size. Um, and singers in fat bodies encounter just tremendous discrimination on a daily basis in general society and in medical situations and in learning environments. And, um, so this is again, sort of looking at dismantling implicit bias and things we've been taught. Even the, you know, even the saying, it's not over till the fat lady sings, you know, like, (laughs) what's that about where did that come from why do we say that is that still okay you know
1: see I find that funny I use that to my advantage on a regular basis
2: yeah it's an interesting it's a really interesting topic of study and it's not really been tackled Mm. um no
1: absolutely so what have you have you got some early findings what are you what are you kind of well right now emerging right now
2: So what we've done so far is that we've written a a two part article that's going to be coming out next year um, about the context and the culture of um, of being a fat singer moving through the world um, like that. And then looking at sort of pedagogical a- adaptations that we might make um, as teachers in in ways to make our voice studios more inclusive for singers of all sizes. So uh, for example, one of the things that I think is really important to consider is this practice of standing in front of a mirror for the entire duration of a voice lesson. <laughs> Stand in <to> the size <laughs> of a <the> mirror. <laughs> 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 (laughs) (laughs) You got a wall of mirror. You (laughs) got a wall of mirror. I don't (laughs) mean to stand in front of it. They get
1: to stand over there. It's fine.
2: Yeah. (laughs) But I mean, that is that's an inclusive act that you've just done, because standing in front of a mirror and watching yourself sing doesn't work for every person. And it may be actually more distracting than helpful for people with dysmorphia, body dysmorphia or a history of eating disorders or just, you know, who who struggle. And and I think that we can't possibly know our our students' personal histories and their you know, what their perception of their bodies are. People who appear thin can also have body dysmorphia and a history of eating disorders, we don't know because that's totally beyond our scope of practice as voice Mm -hmm. teachers. And -hmm. it's not our business necessarily to know. Um, And so we can't make assumptions either way based on what somebody looks like. So for example, we suggest in our article that you have a covering on your mirror and that you let the student know that if they would like to remove the covering for their lesson or for any portion of their lesson, that they are absolutely empowered to do so at any time, but that the covering starts on the mirror and that way the student doesn't mm. have to worry. Um, and I, I actually just started doing that this semester mm. in my studio, and all semester long, no one has removed the covering, which wow. I think is really interesting because interesting. I, I, I used a mirror incessantly as a student, you know, standing and looking and learning, and it was a very effective tool for me mm but that doesn't mean that that's true for everyone. Um, and I have definitely had students before who will like fidget really kind of incessantly fixing their hair, fixing their clothes, pull you know, in, in front of the mirror. And I, at times I've said like, okay, let's put our back to the mirror so we can, you know, just feel what's happening and not worry about, how we're how we're looking and um and so i think that you know it it really does make a big difference it it can be a really effective tool for learning but you can also use a hand mirror if you want you know to look at articulators or jaw or you know specified areas of the body and it can be just as effective as the Hmm. full-length mirror and then it doesn't introduce Mm -hmm. the sort of surveillance of the the anxiety of it yeah Mm -hmm. the potential you know um, and so just small things like that, you know, and, and my students have all, you know, and I explained it all to them as to why it was there. Cause I have kind of a sheer covering and it looks a little bit like Shiva, you know? Um, and so I wanted to clarify to my students why the mirror was covered. <laughs> and, and so I sort of explained to them and they went, Oh, well, that's really cool. Thank you for doing that. You know, that was sort of the response was like, Oh, they hadn't really thought about it, you know, but um, but just it's a small act that may, can have a large impact for for certain students. Um, and again, it's like if we don't know, we don't know the trauma history of our students. We're not supposed to know. And and so it's sort of like, let's be cautious. Let's, you know, play it safe and and also pass along some empowerment to the student um, so that they still have the tool available if they would like to use it, um, but not to make it mandatory.
0: Mm-hmm. That's some great so, advice.
2: So this is, so this is what we've done so far. And then we are also in the middle of our, uh, research gathering process. So we're doing interviews now with folks and we're putting together, um, you know, a a large, we have about over 60 participants in the study so far. And we're doing a sort of combination of written interviews, zoom interviews, phone interviews, depending on, uh, you know, the preferences of our participants. And then we'll be, you know, doing some analysis. So like I said, it could very easily get up to a book scale project. Mm. Um, Mm -hmm. For the moment we're gathering data and figuring out what we want to do with it going forward. And right. so that
0: was the first part you said comes out next year. Is that right?
2: Yes. So the first part, which is the, the culture context and then pedagogical recommendations for inclusion that will come out next year. And then, um, and then hopefully we'll be sharing then our results from, from this study that we're doing right now. And, you know, the stories are absolutely fascinating and and it seems, you know, we've been really surprised by the by the turnout um, of participants. And it seems like, you know, especially the, you know, the Zoom interviews and the phone interviews, we get to interact with folks. You know, people really want to tell these stories. They want to talk about their experiences, you know, positive and negative. But um, but it's definitely something that for so long was such a. Um, Taboo topic and just very, very hard to talk about. It's very emotional for a lot of uh, folks. Um, but, but it seems like it's time, like it seems like we're all ready to talk about it and to hear about it. And as uncomfortable as it is, you know, to hear, you know, upsetting stories and things that have happened in people's past, if we're not talking about it, then how are we going to fix it? How are we going to make sure it doesn't happen again? And, and how are we going to shift the industry? Because I think. Um, certainly in terms of size discrimination, I think the industry is often blamed, you know, and like I personally, as a teacher, well, I don't think that you need to lose weight, but the industry thinks you do, Mm. you know, and, and that sort of, you know, but then what are we doing? We're perpetuating something then as teachers that could harm your student. It can hurt your student. And do we want to be doing that? Or do we want to be, um, advocating for change, advocating that the industry needs to change, not the individual singer's body. Um, and that really, if we want to be telling stories that include our diverse population, we need bodies of all sizes on stage representing the world. That's accurate. And, um, and if we're only seeing people who look a certain way, then we're not really getting the full palette of stories that we want access to.
1: Oh, I feel, I feel like I need to go and change the world now after that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to go and buy a cover for my mirror. <laughs>
0: You need the big you know. cover.
1: <laughs> oh, yeah. I just I like looking at myself in the mirror.
2: Well then you should have it open. I want but it for me. That's your <laughs> You you should be empowered though for your for your preferences. Yes.
0: <laughs> oh, dear babe. It is amazing, so we have had, in other conversations we've had in this podcast, just the sheer responsibility that lies on our shoulders as voice teachers for, yeah. with the students in front of us. And I, I, you know, like you said, anybody can enter this field. It's very unregulated, and it just, we have this, you know, responsibility that we should be doing our best to learn and provide, as you say, an empowering and welcoming environment to our students that's inclusive. So, yeah, this is... It's a really important message for people listening to understand this and just understand the power. I mean, this like even we've talked about just the way that you give feedback to somebody, how you provide constructive criticism to them by their singing, how important it is to use the right wording.
2: Yes. Yes. Well, and I think too this you know Gen Gen Z that's coming up. You know, I have I have a a fifteen year old daughter um, who you know continually sort of reminds me that that this generation has no tolerance for our patterns and our, you know, systems of power that are exclusive. Like they just, they just think it's all ridiculous, you know? And so this generation of students coming up, they have different expectations for how we are going to comport ourselves as teachers. And it's very much a, you know, they, they seem not to be afraid as a generation to push back if they don't, Mm. if they don't like what's happening or if they feel that it's, um, disempowering you know so so i think that it's you know the expectations have really changed you know i've i've been in higher education for uh nine years and even just in those nine years the scope of what i'm responsible for um in, in terms of creating that environment, what that looks like for the student has expanded and, you know, gotten larger and larger and includes all this social justice work now, which I never would have thought, you know, as an undergraduate music major, that that would eventually be something I would need to know, <laughs> that would really play an active role in how I teach every day. Um, so it's, and and of course, there's nothing in my, in my study, programs of study that would have prepared me for what I now need to know every day. Mm. So so I think that you're right. It it is it is a really broad but I think but I think also that's just the atmosphere of teaching too that like, you know, the students are the, the client, right? They're gonna they're gonna demand a certain level and if they don't get it, they'll take their business elsewhere. And that's that's not just exactly, true in the yeah. private sector, but that's also true in university programs, you know? And you know, you have to you have to provide a welcoming environment or um or the students will speak up. And And so they should Yeah, absolutely So
0: Elizabeth If people want to find out more about you Or they want to get a copy of your book Can you just tell us where people can find you?
2: Yes, the easiest way to find the book is Amazon. Um, but you can also go to the Compton Publisher website. Um, you can order it there. And, um, I do, I have my own website, Annbenson.com, and you can go there and learn more about me. Um, or you can find my profile through Auburn University in, uh, Auburn, Alabama and uh, the, de- the Department of Theater and Dance. So not next door to the music department. Um, but theater and dance, that's where the musical theater program is housed. And so that's where I live. And, um, and, um, and then I'm also very happy. There's a contact me uh, page on my website and I I love it when folks reach out, um, especially if they've heard, you know, me talking about something and they want to talk further. I love that. So you can find me there or on social media.
0: Awesome. And we will put links to all of those in the show notes as well for people so they can find them. But it's been, it's been lovely to chat to you and it's been lovely to, 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 to see the webinar as well and as i say i immediately went out and bought the book straight after the webinar because i was just fascinated to read about all the different things so just thank you for sharing I, with us and you
1: wanted all the gossip <laughs> i did
0: I wanted to yes. see what people had oh, said
1: gossip who said what <laughs> yeah
2: it's you get it straight from the source straight from the source <laughs> so, yeah <laughs> well thank you yeah, so much was, thank you for having yeah. me this was a lot of fun
0: so that was Elizabeth then. And as you saw, her sparkly background is fabulous.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, Do you know what? I could pick Elizabeth Brains for hours and hours and hours. She's just, you know, a terribly interesting person. She's got some really interesting ideas and research projects going on. Fascinated.
0: Yeah. So and she's I, one of these people that's, that I'm beginning to discover as we interview more and more people that are just so generous with their time and their knowledge and their expertise and just share openly and talk about it. And it's so wonderful to... Sit down and have a chat with these people that are just so passionate about it and want to share it and tell you about it.
1: Absolutely. You know and even after we stopped recording, we we still hung around and chatted for another, like,
0: yeah, like another half hour.
1: <laughs> I was picking their brains on all kinds of things.
0: <laughs> See you told you we're nosy. This is the only reason we do the podcast is for our personal <laughs> vocal development.
1: Well, it's fascinating. I was I was having a debate with her about, you know, well, not it wasn't a debate, she was agreeing with me that, you know, a lot of the research comes from, you know, people who work in academia. And therefore, because academia is primarily classical, especially in the in the U.S., most kind of high-end degrees and masters and, and things to do with singing are all classical-based. It means that a huge amount of the research that's coming out is done on classical singers. Um, and there's not quite as much research done on, you know, contemporary styles of music. Um, mm. And that's because... If you're outside of academia, no one pays you to do the research. So yeah. you can do research, but you have to do it off your own steam and you have to invest your own money in it. And then if you get published, nobody pays you to be published. So you don't get paid if your research paper <laughs> gets published in a, in a journal. So there's really no kind of financial gain unless you're in academia and it's a, a requirement of your job to do it.
0: Yeah cuz you know I imagine doing that kind of research is not cheap you no, know just to do the actual research
1: Absolutely and certainly you know it's it's prohibitive if you want to do some you know research that involves any kind of stroboscopy anything like that I mean forget it you've got to pay to use medical equipment that is going to cost you an arm and a leg and yeah I'm not sure you'll see much of that money <laughs> afterwards so unless you're in a university setting where they have access to that you know that you can use uh it is quite difficult but she was saying that the current research project she's working on she's working alongside a teacher who is outside of academia and she was saying that's why they've partnered up because she has the resources from being inside of working in academia and um her research partner is just someone who had uh, an interest in an idea and wanted to research something which i think is a great compromise
0: Uh, yeah absolutely best of both worlds isn't it
1: yeah but there we go that's me just going off of my soapbox again (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. what's our next episode tom
0: i don't know our next episode is (laughs) let's just find out what the calendar says um, do we you know what our
1: next episode is? If we don't, it's fine They'll tune in, they'll figure it out
0: <laughs> Um, We don't know what our next episode is yet But I do know that we have surprise. four wonderful people lined up So it could be any one of those could, four people Oh,
1: Potluck Well, you'll have potluck. to make sure that you are tuned in Subscribed. How do they subscribe and tune in, Tom?
0: Yeah, so what you want to do is go to your favorite place that you consume podcasts and then search for the Vocal Advancement Podcast. And there you will find all these delightful episodes. Make sure that you are subscribing and following us so that you can get notified when the Potluck Podcast – that's a great name, Potluck Podcast. <sighs> we, should, we should just
1: rename the podcast right now.
0: <laughs> I like that. <laughs> Um, but yeah, make sure you're subscribed And you'll get notified when that next episode comes out And we would really appreciate If you're enjoying the shenanigans and biscuits And languages of the world Amongst other things That you could leave us a little review and tell us So that that would help our ratings That would be fab Yeah, nice words Tell us your favourite biscuit as well in the comment
1: <laughs> On love the biscuits again <laughs> Yeah, I'm hungry <laughs> Well thank you for joining so, yeah. us today
0: Indeed, yeah. Thank I hope you, you for enjoyed
1: listening to our rambles.
0: <laughs> today, I would say today was quite a quite a highbrow ramble. Very high intellectual. Ramble.
1: Yes, of course, because yes. we are intellectual people. Clearly,
0: sometimes <laughs> every couple of episodes there's a glimmer of hope for us. <laughs> Next episode we will descend back into the usual chaos. <laughs>
1: <laughs> we'll just stick to the biscuits. <laughs>
0: yeah. <laughs> oh. Fabulous. well yeah thanks for watching nice to see you take care and we'll see you soon